be worshiping. So uh, just in case you're wondering, uh, maybe you're fine, but uh, we, have, we do have overflow seating in our youth room, and we're ready for folks there. If, uh, if uh, things get unruly for you and you're like, I want to be here, but I don't know if I can manage things with my kids or whatever, you're welcome to go there. But we're not sending you there. We're happy that you're here this morning and just want you to know that uh, we're set up for overflow. So I think our guys in the back are looking for uh, folks who need that. But uh, what a great opportunity for us this morning. I mean, uh, Christmas, it seems like it takes just the longest ramp up. It just, you know, for weeks and weeks, you know, Halloween's over and boom, it's Christmas time. But it all comes up to one day. It's all it all comes up to one day, and that day is today, a day that we get to be together as a faith family. And that is really just a special morning, and it doesn't happen very often. You know, it happens every, uh, I think I've mentioned before, five years, six years, and then 11 years, five, six, 11. So it's a special opportunity for us to be together as a faith family, and uh, a great opportunity for us to think about what this all means. And during the month of December, what we've been doing is we've been looking at uh, a, a passage that strips away all the extras about Jesus and just show us, shows us how people who knew Jesus viewed Jesus. And so we've gone to one of the oldest, clearest, and most succinct descriptions of Jesus in the whole New Testament. One of the oldest, clearest, and most succinct. One that goes back Uh, to within decades of Jesus' life and ministry. So we're talking about how people who knew Jesus viewed Jesus. It's in the book of Philippians. Philippians was written around 60 A.D., but this part that we're looking at even precedes that. So it's a very old and authentic uh, portrayal of who Jesus is. And uh, one scholar uh, says this about the passage that we've been studying, that it's a Christological gem that's unparalleled in the New Testament. And that's what we've been uh, looking at for the last several weeks in December. And uh, from this passage in the book of Philippians, we've uh, learned a lot about this baby whose birth we celebrate today. So I want you just to be able to imagine with me, we have a little manger, a feeding trough here this morning. And and uh, what, what I want us to be able to do, and the reason this is here, is because I want us to visualize that all this getting ready for Christmas culminates on a certain day, and that that day is today. And so just to, to, for you to imagine that inside this feeding trough, there's a little baby. Inside this feeding trough is a baby, and we've spent some time this Christmas learning about this baby because in this one passage that we've been studying. And... Uh, as, as we look at this feeding trough and imagine the baby inside of that, I want you to think about the things that you've learned from this passage already. We're going to read the passage here in a couple of minutes, but think about what we already know about this baby. We already know that this baby, we know something about this baby's past. We know that this baby's past goes on for eternity, that, that the, the baby who's, who is represented lying in this, in this feeding trough is actually God in the flesh, that, that this baby has existed forever and ever, not as a baby, but as eternal God, and that at a certain point, God, eternal God, entered a body. So we already know, thinking about this baby, we already know something about this baby's past, that it stretches on for eternity. We also know something about this baby's future. 
And what we know about this baby's future is not very nice. We know that this baby is going to grow up and be murdered, be executed like a hardened criminal. Not because this baby is going to grow up and live a life of crime, but because this baby is eternal God in a body, and that makes this baby different. And this baby is going to think differently and behave differently. This baby is going to speak differently than any other human being. And, and that difference is going to create friction. And this baby is going to think about, he's going to describe himself when he becomes an adult. He's going to describe himself differently because after all, he is eternal God in a body. He's going to say things like, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. He's going to say things like, before Abraham was born, I am. And that thinking differently and acting differently is going to create so much friction. It's going to uh, create so much opposition that it's going to agitate people and threaten people to the point that they decide it would be easier just to do away with him. And that's what they do. They have him executed on a cross. So, we know something about this baby already. A past that goes all the way back to eternity. A future that leads to a humiliating, painful death on a cross. That's what we know about this baby. But the story doesn't end there. The message that that, that this baby embodies doesn't end there. The amazing journey that we just described from eternal past into a body that will die on a cross from a place of highest privilege to a a death of shame and humiliation. That amazing journey doesn't just end with that death of shame and humiliation. That amazing journey instead brings about another outcome beyond this baby's future Beyond that, this amazing journey brings about an outcome that is even more amazing. And that's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. You need to know about the outcome. You need to know about what this baby's journey from eternity past to death on a cross, you need to know what happens after that. And that's what this old, clear, succinct passage in Philippians tells us. We're going to read that passage. Before we do, I want to say one thing. I've mentioned it every time I've talked about uh, this passage this month. We've got to remember who wrote this. It was written by Paul. Paul used to hate Christians. He used to hate Christians and what they stood for. He used to uh, hate them so much that he just wanted them in jail. He wanted them done with it as well. And he devoted his life to that until one point he met Jesus. And when you meet someone that you think is dead and they're standing right there in front of you, it has a way of changing your mind about them. It sure changed Paul's mind. And so in this passage we're going to read, it's in Philippians 2 if you have a Bible with you. love for you to open your Bible to that passage, Philippians chapter 2. If you don't, I'll have it on the screen behind me this morning. Remember, what we're we're going to learn in this passage is, is what happens after this. 
All right, we're, we'll uh, begin several verses before the passage we're going to be studying, where Paul says, Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And now we see a description of Jesus' attitude. And that's the, this is the old passage. This is the material we're going to read next that predates the book of Philippians, where it says this, Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest Place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. A Christological gem unparalleled in the New Testament. That's what this teaching is. And you can see that, you can just see as you read it, that it really falls into two halves. This teaching falls into two halves. In the first half, the first half begins in verse 6 and goes through verse 8. And in that first half, Jesus is the actor. He is the subject of every verb in those verses. So Jesus is the one acting. He he is... Uh, in, in very nature God, and he does not consider equality with God something to be held on to. He makes himself nothing. He becomes obedient all the way to death. Jesus is the one who's acting. But in the second half of the passage, Jesus is not acting anymore. It's God, God the Father, who is doing all the action. God is honoring Jesus and exalting Jesus and promoting Jesus. And in this second half, God is ushering in a new reality. He's ushering in a new governing principle in the universe as a result of Jesus' journey. And that's what takes place after the past, eternal past, and death on a cross it's what God, this is all Jesus, and it's what God does as a result of Jesus' journey that we're going to be looking at this morning. So I'd like for us to read it one more time, and I've put it this time in, in more of its poetic uh, form. And it's the second half of this passage where God does all the action. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We've looked at that first half of this passage. This morning we're going to take in this second half for just a few minutes. And you could, put, you could really summarize the second half. You could summarize what God does as a result of Jesus' journey. You could summarize it like this, that, that Jesus' great act of selflessness has earned for him the greatest status in the universe. How about that? That the most radical act of love ever, a journey from eternity past to impalement on a cross, that is acknowledged by God the Father with the most exalted status in the universe. 
I want us to see that for a minute, and then I want us to celebrate it. First, I want to make sure that we see that in verse 9. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. That's a big, long phrase. That, that phrase, God exalted him to the, high, or exalted to the highest place, that's just one word in Greek. That phrase represents one word, and that one word is basically a word that means super exalt. It's the word exalt with the Greek prefix huper. So we get our, we get our uh, prefix or our word hyper from this word. So that's what this means, that God has hyper-exalted Jesus. Not just exalted him. God has hyper-exalted Jesus as a result of this selfless journey that Jesus took for us. God has hyper-exalted him, exalted him to the highest place. And as part of that hyper-exalting, so that's the first thing, God's hyper-exalted Jesus. Secondly, as part of that hyper-exalting, God has given Jesus a name that is above every name. Now, what's interesting about this is that uh, it says God has given him the name that is above every name. Sometimes in English, often in English, in our New Testaments, we have the article the, a little bit of Greek or English grammar for you. Uh, the article the, that's what it's called. It's called an article, right? The. Often we have the word the in English when it's not really there in Greek because they didn't use it as freely as we do. It's kind of implied in Greek. But many times when, when they want to make a point, kind of like if we want to say not just the, but the, you know, we, we, then, then they'll use the article, and it's meant to emphasize. Well, what we have here is that God has given Jesus the name that is above every name. There's an article there in Greek that's meant to point out God has given Jesus the name that is above every name. The name. You know what name I'm talking about is the idea. The name that is above every name. Now, scholars debate exactly what the name is. There are two options for what the name is. And this is something that I appreciated learning about this passage that I never knew before. The name. There are two options. One is the name Jesus. Right, That God, God is going to bring to the name Jesus a new level of significance. So in Jesus' day, there were a lot of guys named Jesus. Even today, there are guys named, not so much in English, Jesus. I haven't met anyone, but Jesus, right? Uh, and so even though that was a common name, you could understand that, you could understand this as saying that God is going to bring to the name Jesus a level of significance, that, that, has, that is unparalleled. And you can see that that's likely and certainly possible. It certainly is true that the name Jesus has that level of significance. But the other possibility is uh, probably an even better candidate for what Paul means. The name, the name that is above every name. It's God's name from the Old Testament. Now, God's name from the Old Testament is Yahweh. It, it was a name that by Jesus' day was so sacred, Jewish people wouldn't even say that they wouldn't even say Yahweh. They would use some other kind of substitute for, that, for God's name. But God does reveal himself in the Old Testament as having a name, Yahweh. And there's good reason to think that Paul means here that God is going to bestow his signature name, Yahweh, 
on Jesus. I want you to see how that could be. Paul, when, you, when we read, uh, let's see, um, when we read verse 11, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I, I never, never realized that that is actually a quote from the Old Testament. I learned that it was a quote from the Old Testament when we were going through our study called Turbulence just a few months ago. And we were reading in Isaiah chapter 45. And here's what Isaiah chapter 45 says. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, by uh, my mouth has uttered in, in, in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. And here's the word that will not be revoked. Before me, every knee will bow. Er, by me, every tongue will swear. Remember, this is Isaiah, hundreds of years before Paul wrote in Philippians. Paul is quoting from Isaiah, by me every knee will bow, by me every tongue will swear, they will say of me in the Lord, all caps means that's really the name Yahweh, all capital letters, in Yahweh alone are righteousness and strength, all who've raged against him will come to him and be put to shame, but in Yahweh all the descendants of Israel will be found righteous and will exult." Now, Paul has this passage in mind when he's saying every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. They're going to say, in Yahweh alone are righteousness and strength. There is good reason to believe that Paul has the name Yahweh on his mind when he says God is going to give to Jesus the name that is above every name. And when Yahweh is translated in the New Testament, it's translated as Lord. So think about this, that, that Paul has the name Yahweh on his mind, the most exalted name in the universe, God's own unique name. He's going to bestow it on Jesus, and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh. And actually, one more quick thing, Greek. The word order is actually different. Not Jesus Christ is Lord, but, but Paul actually writes, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Lord, Yahweh, is Jesus Christ. So God is going to hyper-exalt Jesus, give him the most significant name in the universe, Yahweh, And the whole universe will acknowledge him for exactly who he is. Yahweh is Jesus Christ. And this will include everyone in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's what it says. And it's going to include people will acknowledge that Yahweh is Jesus Christ by their words. Every tongue will confess And by their deeds, every knee will bow. How's that for something to think about on Christmas morning? So earlier this month, Lisa went to the Feast of Carols. That was at Cordner Hall. And... uh, one of our daughters was singing, and, and you know, I had people from all over town come and sing in choirs and choral groups and orchestras, and, and, the, and the whole city comes and, and feasts on carols. And it wasn't a uh, Christian event. It wasn't necessarily a religious concert, but it 
did feature several Christmas carols that the whole audience sang together with the choirs. So the whole audience in Cordner Hall sang Christmas carols, which Christmas carols are some of the deepest theology you find in art. And so here's all these people at Cordner Hall, and they're singing, Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, God with us. And they sang things like, Long lay the world in sin and error, pining, till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. And then they closed the whole whole audience singing Handel's Hallelujah Chorus. And everybody in the room is singing the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, I'm not naive enough to think that everyone in that room believed what they were singing. I know that there were people in that room who didn't even believe God exists. I know there were people in that room who believed, well, maybe something exists, but you can't possibly know who it is. I know there were some people in that room who sing, yes, something exists, and his name is Allah. Right? And uh, you're talking about people in that And there were some people who said, yeah, okay, maybe I believe God exists, but I'm going to do my own thing with my life. There were people of all kinds of nationalities, all kinds of perspectives on the religious scale, very religious, not, all types of religions, all types of lifestyles, and they were all singing, King of kings and Lord of lords, and he shall reign forever and ever. And what happened in that room is a microcosm of what's going to happen someday in the universe. Every tongue will sing, King of kings and Lord of lords. Some will sing it willingly. Some will sing it begrudgingly. Some will sing it because they've willingly accepted God's salvation. And some will sing it because they have begrudgingly bowed to God's sovereignty. They had no choice. But everyone will sing it. Everyone will acknowledge that Lord Yahweh is Jesus Christ. Jesus' great act of selflessness has earned for him the greatest status in the universe. The sooner we acknowledge that, the richer our lives will be. The more of our life we will expend in, in, in partnership with and, and relationship with the God of the universe who loves us. I'm not naive enough to think that everyone here necessarily believes everything that I've shared with you this morning. If you're not exactly sure where you are on what you think about Jesus, it would be a good time in this life to determine that. It would be a good time today to determine that for sure, because someday you will acknowledge it. You can acknowledge it today willingly, or someday 
begrudgingly. But Yahweh is Jesus Christ. If you're in the midst of processing that, we'd love to uh, have you take a book with you that could help you think about some of these things. It's just a small starter, but it's called The Case for Christmas by a journalist named Lee Strobel, and he walks people through some of the big objections that they have about believing that Jesus is who he says he is. We'd love for you to pick that up. We'd love for you to have a conversation with one of us about some of your obstacles and struggles in coming to grips with this. We'd love for you to be part of our faith family and, uh, and ask questions as you journey with us, and we'd love to be uh, part of your discovery process in figuring out who Jesus is. But most of us here believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's why we're here on Christmas Sunday morning. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask Noe to come up and you get set up. And uh, we're going to be worshiping Jesus this morning in a microcosm of what will someday will be the greatest uh, celebration in the universe. So we're going to participate today in what the whole universe will do. We will sing, Jesus Christ is our Lord. So we're going to close our service with worship. We're going to sing, then we're going to give our offering, and then we're going to be dismissed. And, and every song that we're going to sing has some element of Philippians 2 in it. Every song that we're going to sing has some element of Jesus Christ is Lord in it. And we're going to celebrate it together. So what I'd like to do is pray, and then I'm going to invite you to stand with me. Father, we want to, uh, we want to get in on what's going to happen someday. And we thank you that Yahweh is Jesus Christ, that you have given him the name above every name. He deserves hyper-exalting because of his hyper-debasing on our behalf. That we can have forgiven sins, a repaired relationship with God, the promise of eternity with you because of Jesus' hyper-debasement. And we get to participate in his hyper-exalting. Help us to do that through your spirit this morning as we worship Jesus the Son, the one you sent for us. And we ask it because it's only in his name that we can even talk to you. So we do ask in his name, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.